The question is, why does civil disobedience matter? Why, when we've got a democracy and we have all of these institutions in place for uh, legitimate recourse of complaints, why is civil disobedience important? Uh, I am pleased today to have as a guest Professor Howard Zinn. Uh, Professor Zinn's appearance on KUCI 88.9 FM's Justice or Just Us marks the 35-year anniversary of the publication of his book, Disobedience and Democracy, Nine Fallacies on Law and Order, recently reissued by South End Press. The book was written in part as a response to a 7-to-1 Supreme Court decision that upheld the criminal conviction of David O'Brien for burning his draft card. When Justice Abe Fortas wrote a uh, booklet on civil disobedience justifying such prosecutions, Zinn drafted a response which contained nine fallacies. Zinn's essay immediately sold over 70,000 copies and remains relevant during the current push for war, uh, as relevant as it did during Vietnam. Uh, Professor Zinn, welcome to KUCI's Justice or Just Us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, thank you very much for uh, for being here, and uh, congratulations on the republication of uh, disobedience and democracy. Oh, yes, yes. South End Press in Boston decided to republish a number of my books that had been out of print, thinking that uh, they would be very pertinent for the present situation. So I'm glad they did. Well, I, I find it uh, extremely relevant, uh, given the current the current push for war. But I, I'd like to begin by asking uh, you to comment on the title of your book. I mean, most citizens would likely assume that uh, disobedience and democracy are counterintuitive. So why is disobedience necessary in a democracy? Yeah, well, you know, obedience, uh, obedience is the kind of... Uh, value that you expect not in a democracy but in a totalitarian state uh, the very idea of democracy is that the people of the country have a right to disobey the government in fact uh, you need to go back to the Declaration of Independence which after all is you know our founding uh, set of principles and the Declaration of Independence makes it clear that government is an artificial entity government is set up uh, by the people of the country to achieve certain ends uh, equality, life, liberty the pursuit of happiness and according to the Declaration of Independence when a government becomes destructive of those ends and these are the words of the Declaration it is the right of the people to alter or abolish the government. In other words, the, the, the job of the people is to see that the government is fulfilling its obligations, and if it's not fulfilling its obligations, it is the right of the people to disobey that government. Well, according to the Declaration, alter or abolish it. But if it has the right to alter or abolish it, it certainly has the right to do something lesser, and that is to disobey it. And uh, so I'm arguing that democracy requires disobedience, uh, and that if you have a, a supreme value attached to obedience, then you have destroyed democracy. 
Well, I think that's interesting because one of the uh, the fallacies, in fact, the fifth fallacy uh, that you discuss, and again, I want to remind listeners, it's a fallacy uh, that the political structure and procedures in the United States are adequate uh, as a remedy for the ills of our society. Now, to play devil's advocate for a second, couldn't uh, one claim that the founding fathers of this nation created the social institutions that we have as a way of remedying the ills of society? As a way of remedying the ills of society? Historically, no. Uh, historically, the founding fathers created the Constitution not to enable people to remedy the ills of society, but really to sort of maintain law and order to maintain things as they were. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, if you look into the background of the Founding Fathers and uh, you look into the, the uh, document that they produced, uh, I mean, the, the, uh, and look into the, what happened just before the Constitutional Convention when there was a rebellion of farmers in western Massachusetts and and the Founding Fathers got excited about that rebellion and wanted to create a structure which would prevent future rebellions. So the, the Constitution, you might say, was in a certain conflict with the Declaration of Independence. Because the con- while the Declaration of Independence promoted the idea of, of disobedience at certain times, the Constitution promoted the idea of having a structure that would prevent... Uh, rebellion and protest. Uh, so uh, they set up a, a structure uh, not designed for change, but designed for keeping power and wealth where it was. And I think uh, not only disobedience and democracy, but uh, the body of your work over your career has done a very good job of showing uh, many of the failures of the current uh, social institutions. Uh, for example, you write uh, in Disobedience and Democracy how the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, or the, the Kerner Commission, uh, talks about how little has been accomplished for uh, African Americans uh, throughout history, as you know, and how the the social institutions have uh, have failed so many different groups. Uh, could you comment on that a bit? No, the. Uh Bringing up the Kerner Commission is interesting uh, because there is probably no no part of American history which is more revealing uh, of the limits of the governmental structure and its ability to remedy ills. No, no part of American history more revealing of those limitations than the history of black people because, after all, the... And, the Constitution uh, did not uh, permit the ending of slavery. Uh, and you had to have civil disobedience to begin a national anti-slavery movement in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, in which uh, fugitive slaves and abolitionists joined to violate the Fugitive Slave Act. The Fugitive Slave Act called for the uh, return, the forcible return of escaped slaves to their masters and put the federal government behind that. Well, abolitionists, uh, black and white, uh, refused to obey that law. And uh, and they, they created, in that way, a, a great movement. Uh, 
which then uh, was had a powerful effect on Lincoln and on Congress and on bringing an end uh, to slavery. Uh, but we can carry the history of black people even further, if you, uh, because after the Civil War, when the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments were added to the Constitution, uh, presumably now we had built into the fundamental structure of the government the ideas of equality. The Fourteenth Amendment: No person shall be denied the equal protection of the laws. Or the Fifteenth Amendment: No person shall be denied the right to vote. Uh, because of race or color or previous condition of servitude. So now you would say you have the structure for democracy, for equality in place. But what happened? Then none of the 14th and 15th Amendments were not enforced by the government of the United States. And as a result, blacks were denied the vote, right to vote in a large part of the country. Blacks were segregated in a large part of the country. And it wasn't the governmental structure that remedied that situation. It was the movement of the, what we call the civil rights movement, the movement of black people in, in the South uh, who gathered together, protested, demonstrated, went to jail, some of them were killed, and, uh, and created a f national furor over racial segregation. And only then did the governmental structure begin to react. So the, the history of black people is sort of a perfect example of the absolute necessity for civil disobedience and of the in, uh, inability of the existing democratic structure, the institutions, Congress, the President, Supreme Court, uh, by themselves uh, to bring about important social change. And I think that's a really important point because we're taught in civics classes and we're taught, uh, you know, throughout the, the educational system that there are legal recourses, uh, there, there is legal recourse for, uh, the, the airing of different viewpoints. Mm. And, uh, I, I guess particularly this morning as, uh, there's a, uh, you know, FCC hearings on, uh, media ownership and so forth, you know, there are, countless limitations to the the different perspectives that uh, that can be heard not to mention the cost of a, a civil case or a constitutional case um, I think it's interesting that uh, you know you've written I believe you've written the foreword to uh, the book uh, lies my teacher told me mm. and uh, and other things um, so what uh, what are some of the gains that uh, civil disobedience uh, you know aside from those well, that you've mentioned yeah well um I mentioned the, uh, the history of, of uh, African-American people in this country and the, the necessity for them to resort to civil disobedience. And, uh, but take, uh, take the rights of working people in this country. I mean, uh, how can anybody say that the working people could have gone through the regular structures of government in order to get the eight-hour day? There's nothing in the Constitution to grant economic rights. I mean, that's why Franklin Roosevelt in 1944, when he was running for, uh, for his third term, Franklin D. Roosevelt talked about an economic Bill of Rights because the Bill of Rights that we have in the Constitution provides political rights, no economic rights. There is no right to work less than 16 hours a day. There's no right uh, for safety measures on the job. Huge numbers of people are killed and crippled on the job. And uh, working people in the United States found that 
no, they could. There were no regular institutions they could go through. The Congress, the presidency, the laws, the Constitution to change the conditions of their lives. So what did they do? They went out on strike, uh, and they uh, they went outside the structure. Uh, and they faced the power of the National Guard and the police and the armies. And, uh, but, uh, but they won the eight-hour day by those struggles. They did in their time what, this, what black people did in the civil rights movement later. And that's still true, that, that uh, the uh, working people uh, find that they have to resort to going outside the regular institutions. They have to go on strike. They have to declare boycotts. I mean, Cesar Chavez... Uh, did not find that the regular uh, institutions of government was were helping the farm workers who were so terribly exploited uh, on the West Coast and elsewhere. And so we organized a national boycott. Uh, boycotts, strikes, uh, demonstrations, protests. Uh, these are all the the elements uh, and the tactics of civil disobedience which are absolutely necessary to bring about democracy. I want to remind listeners that they're in tune to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us, and we are speaking with Professor Howard Zinn. He is the author, of course, of People's History of the United States, Declarations of Independence. You can't be moving, you can't be neutral on a moving train, and uh, the republication of disobedience and democracy, nine fallacies on law and order. Uh, Professor Zinn, it seems, though, that uh, we've been talking thus far uh, simply about social protest. Is social protest the same as civil disobedience? Well, you can... Not the same. That is, uh, uh, civil disobedience is social protest, but social protest is not necessarily civil disobedience. Social protest uh, may take forms which do not involve violating the law. Civil disobedience, um, by definition, is, is sort of a violation of the law. But you can have all sorts of protests... Uh, and actions and demonstrations uh, which do not violate the law, but which are still, they don't violate the law, but they're outside of the legal institutions that are presented to us to bring about change. For instance, you know, there's going to be a huge demonstration in, in Washington this Saturday to protest the impending war on Iraq. And, and San Francisco, I should add. <laughs> yes, that's right. And, and other places, yes. San Francisco, yes. Uh, and uh, now these demonstrations are not civil, civil disobedience. You know, that, that is, they're not violating laws. Uh, although there are times when people protesting against the war do violate laws. Uh, but if, but demonstrations in themselves, you know, are you know within the purview of the First Amendment, but they're outside of the existing you know, uh, institutions. Uh, so, so there are many many ways of of uh, acting and protesting uh, outside of the structure of government, and not necessarily committing civil disobedience. When does the tipping point reach the deliberate violation of a law? I mean, at, at what point uh, couldn't people argue that uh, the the protests in Washington D.C. and the protests in San Francisco, where one acquires a permit from the government and uh, and so forth, that that those are 
effective enough in bringing about uh, change to policy? I mean that those are, you say, ineffective? No, that those, couldn't one argue that uh, the peaceful and uh, law-abiding forms of social protest Mm. are sufficient to bring about social change, that one doesn't need the deliberate violation of the law? Well, I happen to disagree, but uh, yeah, I mean, no, I happen that's, to... no, that's an, it's a legitimate question, and I suppose the answer is if if you can if you can bring about change uh, without violating the law, uh, fine. Uh, there's no inherent uh, requirement for civil disobedience, but there are times when uh, when uh, peaceful protest and uh, and uh, doing things within the letter of the law are not sufficient, and laws have to be violated, laws have to be broken. This is what was uh, found in the civil rights movement in the South. Uh, and people had to uh, violate the law. They had to sit in at lunch counters and refuse to leave, even though the supreme law of the land, the supreme, that was the Supreme Court, uh, had not... Uh, accepted the idea that that restaurants and public places must uh, admit people with without regard to race. So they were violating the law, but they found it was absolutely necessary. Without the sit-ins, without the freedom rights, without the acts of civil disobedience, without the uh, ref- the uh, violations of requirements that you must have a permit to do that, this or that. Without all of those actions of civil disobedience, I don't think the civil rights movement would have succeeded uh, as it did. And then we found uh, during the war in Vietnam that uh, the the acts that were done within the law, protest demonstrations, yes, they were useful and so on, but in order to dramatize the movement against the war, in order to bring more people to think about it, uh, it was felt by many people that that you had to commit acts of civil disobedience. Those people, the priests and nuns and lay people who went into draft boards and and uh, destroyed draft records, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the Catonsville Nine and the Baltimore Four and the uh, you know the the Berrigans and uh, and the other people who did that. They were violating the law, and they did that because they felt that uh, the regular institutions of government and even the sort of peaceful protests that had within the law that had been going on uh, were not sufficient, and they wanted to dramatize for the nation uh, what was happening in Vietnam. Uh, I remember uh, I, I was at the trial of the Milwaukee 14, uh, again, another draft board raid, and one of the priests who had participated in it testified from the stand. He said, I tried everything else. He said, I protested. I went to Senator Kennedy, um, and, who was my senator, and I said, well, hey, why doesn't the Senate stop the war? Congress seemed uh, incapable of stopping the war. And so I thought, yes, I had to do more. And so I went out with these other people, and, and we, yet we violated the law in order to bring our protest to the attention of the nation. And I think people tend to forget 
exactly the nature of civil disobedience. I think they forget that Martin Luther King uh, was put in jail for his act of civil disobedience, and uh, that civil disobedience or the deliberate violation of a law can simply be African Americans sitting at a lunch counter when there's a law prohibiting that kind of behavior. I, I think it follows then, the natural question is, has the connotation of civil disobedience changed throughout history. I mean, it seems today, that, and particularly after Vietnam, that people tend to equate civil disobedience with violent disobedience or destruction. Well, no, I, I think uh, people may do that because I think the organs of government and and very often the press, the major press, the major media, which very too often go along with the government. Uh, will create the impression of, of uh, violence being associated with civil disobedience. And for instance, when there were the demonstrations in Seattle uh, against the, the World Trade Organization, they, uh, I mean, the demonstrations were peaceful and nonviolent. I mean, they were lively and dramatic, but they're peaceful, nonviolent. But there were a handful of people who broke windows, and, and the media and the government concentrated on that. Uh, uh, to make the point that uh, you know uh, violence is associated with protest, uh, but you know most, um, by far, most civil disobedience has been nonviolent, uh, but very, very active and forceful. And I, I think it's interesting with uh, the Seattle protests uh, for the World Trade Organization. Uh, you know, there were at least 100,000 people there on a, a weekend. And uh, I like to point out to, to people who, who sometimes criticize uh, my turnout at, at protests that uh, on any given Sunday there are sporting events, you know, football games and whatnot across the country. And if there's a crowd uh, gathered of uh, 100,000 at uh, a football arena, there's likely to be at least a handful of arrests for uh, public disorder, drunkenness, or even, you know, the destruction of property. Yet uh, the the major news outlets or uh, the major media sports outlets don't find uh, find it necessary to cover those events. <laughs> that's that's a very interesting point. Yeah, I, I I haven't seen people reporting on on the results of of uh, football games and having in in the headline, you know, five protesters were arrested, right. and then in the second paragraph, oh, the Redskins have won. Right, yeah. exactly, and uh, I, I think that's interesting. Well, I, I know that uh, we've got a time restraint here, so yes. I want to uh, be sure to get in uh, some of the last questions that uh, that I have, but it seems that one of the things you discuss throughout your work is uh, kind of a, a Machiavellian equation about whether uh, the means of protest or the means of government action or inaction justify the ends. Uh, could you make the case for civil disobedience as the means justifying the ends? Well, uh, civil disobedience as a means is not a harmful thing. I mean, there are problems that arise when you have a good end and you use bad means, uh, means that are harmful to people, and claim you need to do that to achieve that end. Uh, I mean, for instance, the, the you know the, the war and the war on Iraq. I mean, I mean, war is a horrible means. War inevitably, uh, the war in Iraq that goes on will inevitably kill tens of thousands of people. 
that's a, a means which morally cannot be tolerated, but the government says, oh, we must tolerate it because uh, we will have an end, which is a democratic Iraq or the fall of Saddam Hussein. Well, uh, that's morally unacceptable because the means, the terrible means, are certain. The so-called good end is uncertain. And uh, the idea of civil disobedience is to use a means which is itself not harmful to human beings. It may violate the law, uh, but it's, it's, it's not killing people. It, that's not the means that are being used. Uh, and the ends of civil disobedience are to secure justice, racial equality, or stopping a war, or, or changing the conditions of labor. Right, and I think that you know that's an important distinction. Um, and I, I suppose finally, what um, when? Uh, all right, let's uh, gather my thoughts here. Um, Ward Churchill has a, a very interesting essay titled "Pacifism as Pathology," which uh, I, I suppose maybe revisits some of the findings that uh, William Gamson, the uh, noted sociologist. Uh, discusses in his book, The Strategy of Social Protest. And I think that both works, in varying degrees, suggest an only limited success for nonviolent resistance. Um, is it possible that you could comment on that a bit as uh, maybe some final thoughts? The limited effectiveness of nonviolent protest? Correct. Well, uh, I know that uh, when... Nonviolent protest is insufficient, or when it doesn't accomplish its purpose, uh, the tendency then is to say we are going to need to move to violence. But I think that that is um, a mistake. Uh, I think uh, what happens then is that people have gotten tired. Uh, people uh, are not persisting long enough. Uh, and because the the turn to violence is a confession of, of failure. It's a, it's a confession that you're, you're not willing to, to continue with the kind of actions that you've continued. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and what happens with, when you turn to violence is that I think then you corrupt the ends that you are seeking. I mean, I, I look at the situation in South Africa and, and, and the People who were suffering under apartheid could have, a long time ago, decided that you know, they were impatient and they weren't going to continue their protests and their actions and their strikes and against the apartheid regime. And, and they could have turned to armed struggle because of that impatience. And maybe they would have won. Uh, but in the process, a million black people would die. And I think the African National Congress decided wisely to uh, persist, uh, they did. They did not remain passive. Uh, they remained active. Uh, they persisted with all possible means at their disposal, short of war, and eventually they succeeded. When is uh, violence justified then? And I guess, uh, as a final thought, this is touching upon the fourth fallacy, which is that civil disobedience must be absolutely nonviolent. Well. Uh, the well, I was making a distinction I, in, when I was discussing that between violence to people and violence to property. Correct. And I was responding to the fact that uh, 
that acts of civil disobedience, uh, when they involve destruction of property, when they're immediately described as violent. And I don't accept that definition because uh, uh, if you uh, uh, destroy draft records and protest against the Vietnam War, if you uh, do damage to a nuclear missile uh, in order to dramatize your protest against the nuclear weapons and nuclear warfare, uh, and, you know, if... Uh, Anytime you do things like that, which, yes, are damaged property, uh, uh, on behalf of, of a just end, I think, I, think uh, I do not characterize that as violence. To me, uh, uh, the, the violence to be abhorred, the violence to be avoided, is uh, violence directed against human beings. And I think it's it's interesting that yet again it's a situation where uh, property is uh, put as uh, just as worthy or just as important as a uh, human life, and certainly the destruction of a, a bomb or a, a, a burning of a draft card is actually the destruction of property for the purpose of saving lives. Exactly. And uh, well, Professor Zinn, I know you have to go. Do you have any last-minute uh, suggestions or recommendations for people who uh, want to go out and protest against the current push for uh, war with Iraq? I think people should ever use every means they can, whether it involves civil disobedience, whether it involves uh, a protest that is short of civil disobedience, in order to in order to change uh, a situation. Every possible tactics should be used. Uh, demonstrations, protests, boycotts. Uh, I mean, from rather, you know, uh, uh, simple matters and like r writing letters to the editor or, or calling in on talk shows to vigils. There are vigils being held all over the country in protest of the war. Uh, demonstrations, yeah, even writing to your congressman, which is, seems like a mild thing to do, but I think it's it's an important thing to do. It helped, uh, I think, change the vote in Congress against the war resolution from a handful of congressmen to 130 congressmen because of all the mail they were getting against the war. Uh, and I, if it comes uh, to taking acts of civil disobedience, uh, nonviolent civil disobedience in order to stop the war, then people should be ready to do that. Great. Uh, Professor Zinn's uh, newest republished book is titled Disobedience and Democracy, Nine Fallacies on Law and Order. It is available at South End Press, which is uh, southendpress.org. And uh, I should note that there are uh, several other works uh, released in the uh, Radical 60 series, also available uh, at South End Press. Uh, Professor Zinn, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Justice or Just Us. Uh, thank you. And have a good day. You too. Bye.